0: This is a CJSR podcast,
1: volunteer-powered,
0: listener-supported,
1: campus and community podcast. Podcast.
0: Radio Radio
1: Radio and and (laughs) podcast.
2: You need to stand up for what you believe in. Just because somebody is in a political position, it doesn't mean that they have the right to dictate how our lives go forward. And the only way that we can ensure that we are safe and secure is by depending upon ourselves.
0: Hey, I'm Brandi Keeper. I'm Dan Clear. And you're listening to That's Food from CJSR, revealing the backstory to Edmonton's food, one meal at a time.
1: So the meal we're learning about today happened in 1986.
0: Oh, we're getting historical.
1: Of course. On June 21st, 1986, Carolyn Peavy celebrated her sixth birthday party with some cake.
0: Well, that seems normal.
1: Yeah, it would be. But Carolyn's birthday party was actually held on the picket line outside the Gainers meatpacking plant.
0: Ah, now I'm interested.
1: Right. So the Gainers strike of 1986 was the culmination of various political, economic, and labor contexts. And that summer, Alberta experienced a lot of militant labor unrest, which included the strike at Gainers. But to me, the human story, the experiences on the picket line, the solidarity of not just the labor movement, but of Edmontonians, Albertans, and Canadians, that's what's most compelling about the Gainer strike. And the story of Carolyn's birthday party in her cake is one example of that. So to learn more about the strike, I've talked to Carolyn's mother, Renee Peavy, who took a very active role in the strike. What were the key events that you think that led up to the strike?
2: Um, I would have to say that the key events that led up to the strike was mainly Peter Brocklington was trying to take the pensions mm-hmm. away from the workers. Uh, he was also introducing a, a double-tier wage system. So with the double-tier wage system, essentially what would happen is that if I started in a plant and I'm working alongside a person who's been there for a very, very long time, They, I will never, ever be able to make the same wage for doing the same job that they're doing, no matter how long I'm there. He was setting up a, a scaled system, and what it created was if they know that they can pay me less money because I'm newer at the plant, then the fear was for the... Those who'd been there a long time, that they would be out of a job.
1: Do you remember when the f- the first picket line was held? I do. When was it?
2: It was on June first, nineteen eighty six.
1: Could you tell us a little bit more about that day and what happened?
2: That day, it was for me. It was very strange in the sense that it was my first year working. I had been a stay at home mom prior to that. And I'd only started working at the plant in February. So when we went out on strike in June, I was looking forward to doing my picket duty and then spending time with my kids. However, it was... The support that we had from the get-go was phenomenal. So day one, we you know, you all go down to the in front of the plant and kind of get a feel. Everybody knows you've got to do your picket duty, and it was four hours a day was all that you were asked to do. And you could feel the tension all the way through. There was a lot of excitement. I don't think anybody at that point expected that it would last the length of time that it did. But when you look back at 1984, when he'd asked for concessions, the staff had given him concessions, and he kind of didn't keep up on his word. And so it was—it uh, was organized confusion. In that, many of us had no idea. We had never been on a picket line before, had no idea what to expect, no idea what was to follow. And so there, there was that kind of an excitement, and just go down there and do your time, talk to people. And I—I I was a communicator. I had taken the time when before the plant went on strike to listen to what the people who I was working with, what they had to say. So I was very much invested that Pocklington and the Pocklington's of the world needed to be stopped however however we could.
1: Talking about Pockleton, what was he like?
2: Uh, egotistical. He had hired a, uh, a man from the States by the name of Leo Bolainz who was very well known for being a union breaker. And that was what he was hired for. And he was arrogant. He would make promises, but he didn't keep them. And I don't believe he ever had any intention of keeping them.
1: Could you talk a little bit more about when you had Carrie Lynn's birthday on the picket line? Whose idea was it? to have it on the picket line in the first place.
2: Well, how that came about is the, about day two of the strike, I was asked if I would come and assist in the office. And so I went working in the office, and I was there seven days a week. I was there all day long. And they, I had indicated to them that, you know, come June 21st, I was going to request that day off because it was my daughter's birthday. And at that time, we had uh, two PR people who were brought in from Toronto. One was a gentleman by the name of Ed Seymour, and the other one was a gentleman by the name of Kevin Park. And Ed came to me, and he asked me if I would uh, consider allowing them to do Carrie's birthday down on the picket line. And I said yes. What was it like? You know what? The support was phenomenal. Uh, there were politicians who came down. There were other unions, uh, other uh, members of the union who had children. Their children were there as well. And it was like going to a birthday party. The difference being was that we were essentially breaking an injunction in order to do so. But it was it was peaceful, it was fun, there was music, and we
1: enjoyed You talked a little bit about how there was kind of this overwhelming support, even from the get-go. Why do you think that was?
2: I think worldwide, because it it did catch worldwide attention, was Mm -hmm. the reality for a lot of people that if this one man in this city could do this to his workers, I mean, there were 1,080 of us, then there was the reality that this could also happen anyplace else. And it was a time that really needed to take a stand and say, you know, we are a family of workers who don't want to be put down like this any longer.
1: You kind of talked about your picket line duties. How was that like? How did that affect your personal life?
2: I was actively walking the picket line for only the uh, the first couple days, and then I was in the office. But being on the picket line, you were talking to people who were communicating. People were asking questions. They wanted to know what was going on, what the next steps were. You know, a lot of inquiry, and a, and a very strong belief that we had to we had to do what we were doing. violent. You know, we, when you see buses of people, you know, scabs coming Mm -hmm. in to take your job, uh, we did our best to stop the buses from getting in. And so there's, uh, at one point, we actually took out the window of a bus. Mm A bus was overturned. But at the same time, you've got bus drivers who are coming towards innocent people. You are going to do what you can. You know, you take a body against a bus, you are in unison going to do what you can to protect yourself. And to, I mean, we were all of the same mind that stopping Foxington, he didn't, the scabs were not effective in the plant, but we needed We needed to stand up for ourselves.
1: What, what do you mean when, when you say scab?
2: Scab is, is somebody who comes in, a unionized shop uh, to do the work of the regular employees, which is a very unfair bargaining practice because it gives the employer the opportunity to continue to operate his business without negotiating a contract for for his members, for his staff that he has made these promises to. The scabs are, I, I think you may have we had one of our buttons where gainers make wieners with scabs. They were uninformed. Many of them were not Edmontonians. And, and it puts people against people because they brought in people from other provinces who weren't necessarily aware of exactly what they were coming into, but they were put into a position where you need a job, here's a job, take it. And so it it creates confrontation. And we had a, a very well-organized strike. We had, we would organize daily pickets at various areas, or stores that we knew were selling the Gainers product. Uh, they organized a cross-country tour where 25 of us went out and spoke in different parts of the country about what was going on. We would go into grocery stores and if we saw that they were carrying the, the Eversweet ham, we would speak to the Store owners, uh, anybody who would listen, about you know, please take it off the shelf. And when they understood what we were asking for, in most cases they were they were willing to do so. We weren't coming in rude. We weren't coming in nasty. We were trying to explain what our situation was. For example, I was one of the people who went out to Newfoundland, and I. Uh, organized a get-together with some union members there who were working in a distribution plant, And they had been told by Pocklington that if they didn't handle our product, the Gainer's product, that they would be shut down. When we actually looked into it, there were only nine people in the bargaining unit who would have been affected. And given the amount of food that they, or amount of, product that they distributed for other companies, it was unrealistic that those nine people would lose their job for not handling the gainer's product. They ended up supporting us, taking up a donation and giving it to me. And we would do this this happened all across the country. We had members out who were actively speaking about what the strike was about, because there was a lot of misconception. People don't, if you're just asking for money, people aren't as interested. Not everybody makes the same wage. Not everybody makes a great wage. So it's really hard to, to sell a strike on money. But when it comes to people's pensions, that's a different story. That's something that everybody can relate to.
1: And when you say, um, when you talk about the kind of, some misconceptions that people have, um, what do you think that was?
2: I think th- uh, not fully aware of what was going on, not aware of the history uh, of Pocklington. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was is, this is a man who, he bought gainers by selling two car dealerships. He was, he was not a scrupulous man at all. And so the the misconception or the misinformation that had been provided by the plant itself and by Pocklington and his people did not truly reflect what was going on within the plant and why the workers were taking the stand that they were.
1: Do you think that this story about the strike do you think that's relevant today
2: i think it is relevant particularly when you look at what's going on in alberta politics right now i think that people get to a point where if you don't stand up for yourself nobody else will stand up for you so definitely it 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 can happen anywhere and i think that was one of the surprises is that nobody ever expected that a a meatpacking plant in Edmonton would garner such international attention. It, uh, when you consider that the riot squad was brought down there, those are unionized members as well. The chief of police was on our side, but he needed to do his job to keep everybody safe. The the support that we got from the churches, we had a a march from. St. Francis Church down to the picket line one Sunday and we had expected that maybe, you know, our own members, so there's a thousand but there was about 4,000 people that showed up, which was an incredible surprise to absolutely everybody. There was a group of uh, tradesmen uh, who they called themselves the Dandelions and that particular group went out and raised $7,000 in a few hours towards the strike. Mm -hmm. So when you have that type of support coming in and you're looking at the ridiculous injunctions that were placed against us where three people couldn't gather, that was illegal. Everything, the injunctions that came into place were very, very much geared and keeping the people from talking. We had a rally at, at the legislature, and it was the biggest rally outside the ledge since the Hunger March of 1932. You know, you look at the across the country that bans the hiring of replacement workers, and at the legislature, we had about 8,000 people who showed up.
1: Do you believe that these labor laws should be implemented?
2: Absolutely, I think we need labor laws that uh, make it fair. Because by allowing an employer to bring in in scab workers, it's completely unfair. They don't have to bargain in faith. They're essentially they're they're trying to do operate their plant illegally. Or. I mean, I shouldn't say illegally because they're doing it within the law. The law allows them to do so. But really what they're allowing is the employer to not negotiate fairly. I don't believe that uh, a unionized company should be allowed to bring in replacement workers and not negotiate a, a proper contract. And One of the things within the meatpacking industry, it had always been like the big four. You've got maple leaf, you've got swift, gainers, burns. It was parity. So the first plant that settled, then all of the plants would settle the same. Hawkington wanted to step out of that. And that was one of the things that we were asking for, was parity with the other plants. We weren't asking for any more than anybody else was being given. We were asking for parity to be treated equally.
1: How, how, did, um, how did this settle?
2: Well, they did fight, and the workers did get their pensions. But unfortunately, there was already a ble- uh, behind the closed doors conversation that was going on. And while we had the Gainers Union, we were local 280P, had a guarantee from the Canadian Congress of Labor that they would back the strike for the duration. When we had our final meeting the members were not allowed to ask any questions at all about the contract. Mm-hmm. Which was very, very sad. It was the contract that we were that we ended up with was pretty much close to the initial contract that he had provided. So we didn't gain in that sense other than the fact that we did retain the pensions they bought and won for that. So that to me is a huge win but the in the end what was happening was that they were going into uh, Winnipeg with a meat packing plant there so it was kind of a double edged sword for the workers we did many many things for our workers when it came to food we provide sandwiches we provided there were uh, A whole team, that's what they did, is they made sandwiches so that people were fed. Uh, We had donations. Uh, There was a donut shop called Country Style Donuts that donated donuts every day. When Carrie's birthday was on the picket line, it was the Italian centre that baked her cake. They were all unexpected and much appreciated. And many of the ideas came from the workers themselves. There was a, a lady by the name of Chris McGee, and Chris was a phenomenal lady, and she was the one who organized the sandwich making, and you know got her sister involved, who also worked at the plant, and that's what, how they contributed. And everybody contributed, how in whatever way they could. We did a campaign for Christmas where we had uh, organized our, the children to write their letters to Santa and then we adopted them out across the country to various unions, private citizens, uh, to assist so that the, the children wouldn't bear the brunt of, of the strike. Because our, our picket pay was $40 a week, which isn't a whole heck of a lot of money to live on. What I'd like to say about the strike was that it was an unbelievable learning experience. I have never seen such generosity, such camaraderie from people who we have never, ever had the opportunity to meet. I have never, ever in my life witnessed such an event where one man who is now in jail in California was able to... Put so much stress on people, and I'm I'm afraid that it's something that we're going to see again. I I don't think that that end is is over. The strikes are the only way that a unionized staff can enforce that they get heard and they get a fair wage. it's not in the private sector. Your your boss provides you a wage. He can give you a raise when he chooses to. Within a a unionized plant or uh, organization, everything depends upon what is negotiated. So I hope that people really realize that you need to take a stand for yourself. You need to stand up for what you believe in. Just because somebody is in a political position, it doesn't mean that they have the right to dictate how our lives go forward. And the only way that we can ensure that we are safe and secure is by depending upon ourselves. Standing together, being solid, and being, it's a, it's a family. and family should stand together.
0: Wow, that really gets you thinking about the way in which resistance and celebration intersect on the picket line.
1: Yeah, and how families navigated their lives during the strike. The strike ended after six months. The workers returned to their jobs on December 15th after an agreement was made between gainers and the union local. That agreement ensured workers' jobs and pensions, but they received no wage increases and very little has changed.
0: The provincial government took control of Gainers in 1989 after the company defaulted on its loans. In 1993, another meatpacking company, Burns, bought the plant, and in 1996 it was purchased by Maple Leaf. Workers there went on strike again in 1997 after being denied wage parity in a collective agreement. But their action was short-lived as Maple Leaf shut down the plant rather than renegotiating with the workers.
1: That's sort of a bleak ending, isn't it?
0: I know, but I think Renee's story really challenges that. She's still active in the labor movement today, which I think is super inspiring.
1: It's nice to think that her you know, lifelong activism began on the picket lines at Gaynor's with her family.
0: What do Lazy Maple and History House Bacon firebrand pork wieners, superior blood sausage, and holiday luncheon meat have in common. They were all products that were part of the national boycott on gainers. As you heard in this episode, it was one of the most successful boycotts in Canada.
1: And that's it for this episode of That's Food. Today's episode was produced by me, Dan Clear, and Brandy Kieber.
0: Our music is by Doug Hoyer. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and on our website, that'sfood.transistor.fm.
1: You can contact us at dadsfood at cgsr.com. We are That'sFoodCGSR on Facebook and Instagram. That's Food is produced at CGSR in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory.